Hi folks, welcome to the World Station Podcast. Episode 24 is our final part looking at Moonlight Sonata with Frederick Taylor. Coming up in this instalment, we hear all about the aftermath of the Luftwaffe's infamous raid and its consequences not only for the city and its inhabitants, but also the fallout for Germany on the international stage, as well as its influence on future operations for both the Luftwaffe and also the RAF Bomber Command. Churchill appeared to take a personal interest in this raid, doesn't he? As I recall reading in your book, that right at the very midst of this chaos, that a commander of the mobile anti-aircraft guns firing the centre of Coventry actually gets a phone call and is talking well, directly with Churchill. It, so it was said, yes, that did in fact happen. I mean, Churchill was very good at that sort of thing, of course. And uh, he did. There they were, sitting in this old Victorian villa with this guy you know, telling which guns to fire where and all the trying to get the Germans, which of course they didn't, but they made a lot of noise and made everybody feel better. And yeah, apparently Churchill rang him up as he later later told somebody after the war. And uh, I think morale needed raising at that point, so it was a very clever thing to do. This was a big raid, you know, with 400 German bombers, uh, you know, lasting almost something like eight, uh, eight to 11 hours. That's um, right. What sort of explosive and incendiary devices were used by the Luftwaffe, and did the tactics employed differ from previous raids? I think there are about 50,000 kilograms, uh, by the Germans' own estimate, of uh, incendiaries, and half a, half a million kilograms of high explosives. The mix was one that later became, as I've said before, a basis for how the British then did their own raids on particularly smallish and middle-sized German cities, in that you dropped lots of bombs, high-explosive bombs, to penetrate roofs and get into buildings. And then you dropped the incendiaries, by and large, after that to get into the buildings, I mean, through the holes in the roofs and so on, uh, and, and, and spread fire. Coventry was slightly different because it went on for so long. Later raids tended to be much more concentrated in terms of time, so they would be much more mechanically executed, much more timed than mechanically executed. You have a very intense, like, half an hour, 45 minutes of hundreds of bombers passing over all at the same time uh, and dropping their loads in, in, this, in this designed fashion with the incendiary, you know, using incendiaries to keep fires burning after the high explosives had gone in. Coventry was somewhat like that, and certainly the incendiaries caused terrific damage. I mean, for instance, the destruction of cathedral and so on was down to incendiaries and fires that couldn't be put out because of lack of water. As far as private homes were concerned, of course, incendiaries, Arthur Harris always used to say, oh, well, incendiaries are more humane than high explosives because you can, you can get away from them. In other words, they don't kill people on impact like a high-explosive bomb. And if you've got a few buckets of sand around and so on, and there's not too many of the incendiaries, you can save your house uh, or what have you. I don't know about that. Once, once, once they build up a volume of fire, of course, incendiaries can be a, uh, a terrifying weapon. And mentioned before, the firestorms that created by large numbers of incendiaries are absolutely horrifying. But yeah, the, the balance was more towards high explosives at this stage. Incendiaries really became much more widespread use later in the war, particularly from the RAF. The Germans often referred to phosphorus bombs 
most of them were not really phosphorus bombs at all, but they had petrol in them, and 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 they looked and felt like they were uh, phosphorus, but they weren't in the sense that they didn't stick. They weren't like um, Agent Orange or, or napalm. Uh, the British did, in fact, use napalm later in the war attacks on German uh, uh, aerodromes, but that's not what was going on at this point. They were basically fire bombs with 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 petrol in them you know, to start a fire, and that's what they did. The Germans had a few really, really big bombs, the big parachute bombs and the big air mines, the Luftminen, which is why, of course, they brought in uh, naval unit, naval uh, bomb disposal units after the Coventry raid because actually they were more used to dealing with these kind of mines uh, because of their use in the sea war than an army bomb disposal uh, uh, unit would have been. So it was a mix. I mean, you had your, your little, your relatively small bombs, a few hundred pounds, and then you had the really big ones, like, you know, 4,000-pound bombs, uh, often parachute mines. You would get them landing, and so you'd be getting tangled in a tree or whatever. There's at least one case I came across. And people appeared not to go off, and then people sort of came and, uh, and to investigate, to see what it was up there in the tree, and uh, all those curious people uh, who got too close to it were eventually killed when it eventually exploded. So there were all kinds of things going on there in, in the raid. If it had been more concentration in terms of time, it's quite possible that a major firestorm could have been created in Coventry because, particularly in the centre of Coventry, a lot of the streets were quite narrow. Although a lot of the Met people forget that a lot of the old medieval Coventry in the city centre had in fact been uh, dismantled due to slum clearance uh, in the few years before the war. And so the the centre of Coventry was not quite as labyrinthine and medieval as it had been. They had new wider streets such as, you know, Corporation Street and so on had had now dominated the kind of centre of the city. So it was uh, it was a mix, and these were mixes, of course, that had also been used by the Germans in London. Hitler and Goering are reported to have uh, had a discussion about this and decided they could create absolute havoc in London by uh, using a lot of incendiaries uh, on all these old buildings, particularly in the old city of London. It never quite worked that way, just as... It only worked in some cases later on when the British used similar techniques on German cities, particularly old cities where there were a lot of wood-framed buildings, medieval and uh, early modern buildings. Uh, But Coventry was, in fact, yeah, particularly the centre of Coventry, not so much once you got out to the suburbs where there were more more recently built houses. But certainly in the centre of Coventry, there was plenty of uh, houses that 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 were liable to burn again, because of their being of old wood and rendered construction. What lessons were learned by both sides from this raid? And did it provide a blueprint for future area operations? I think on the British side, two things. One is that it was learned that even in what looked like spectacular destruction, that would destroy both large areas of the city and demolish the inhabitants' morale, neither thing really happened. Coventry population certainly wobbled, uh, as indeed in other sort of cities that were were bombed, not so much London, but Southampton particularly, actually, I think of, uh, which was greatly attacked in September, the attacks on the supermarine 
aircraft factory and on the city itself with its docks. And then the morale certainly went on a big wobble there as well. But, you know, the phrase Britain can take it, take it came in uh, and, and it wasn't quite as clear cut as that. But by and large, Britain did take it. Coventry took it, wobbled. There had a couple of days of people being terrified, a lot of people fleeing the city and so on. But morale recovered remarkably quickly. And that was a lesson, I think, because I think London was one thing. It's huge. You can bomb one part of London and although you might hear it and so on, it, it's not affecting you in your part of London and it's a different experience. Whereas in a place as relatively compact as Coventry, you know your whole city's being attacked. Anybody and everybody you know could be killed at any moment and, and it's happening all over the place. And, and, and it's a, it in, in its way, it gives a quality of terror and randomness into things that uh, you don't feel so much in a big city. It was later the case also when the British bombed Berlin. Berlin is so big that when you're hitting it, you're just hitting relatively small parts of it. And it's a different experience for the inhabitants, a whole different experience. So they learned that. And on an offensive basis, I think they learned the British authorities, more particularly the air ministry, that it was possible to do a great deal of damage to a middle-sized city, which the Luftwaffe undoubtedly did do that night. It was by the standards of the time a spectacular raid and by and large a success even though as we know not as many of factories were outright destroyed as the germans claimed at the time and would have liked to have thought was the case i mean the alvis the old alvis factory uh on the holy road was was very badly damaged. Uh, the Triumph factory in the city centre, not far from the cathedral actually, was pretty much destroyed uh, that night, uh, such that, and that's in November on the 14th, that's such that when they rebuilt it, which, which they had to do because we needed the factory for the war effort, they didn't build it in Coventry at all. They rebuilt it from scratch out at Meriden, you know, west of, uh, east of the city. So, yeah, that was, that was a spectacular success, and it showed the way, so to speak. The British then, when they did retaliate, bombed pretty much clear that the, the bombing raid that was the retaliation was one on Mannheim in, 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 in the Rhineland in Germany, which involved a similar technique, Pathfinder aircraft going over the city, dropping bombs and incendiaries and flares to light up the target and then another wave of bomb following bombers comes in and and bombs over the fires uh, it wasn't a very successful raid the RAF bomber command at the time although it was a big propaganda vehicle for the British government was not actually doing that much damage or having very many successful raids or on the whole dropping uh, its bombs very accurately. So that happened, but of course they just kept working at it. Arthur Harris, when he was made Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command in 41, just came in and and he was uh, very much convinced that concentrated, hard, ruthless bombing could in fact, he, he felt it could bring Germany to its knees on his own. He was he was wrong about that, but uh, it certainly did a lot of damage uh, and created some quite horrific uh, casualty figures in German cities. And they used very much the same techniques that the German the Germans exemplified uh, in Coventry. You know, pathfinders create fires, following waves of bombers come in and bomb the fires, 
and and spread out from there. You can't miss them, obviously, at night. The fires are the one thing you can see. So that was very much learned. The Germans, I think they they could feel pleased with the efficiency, hard work, and courage of their air crews uh, and their relative accuracy. And they moved on to bomb other British provincial cities in much the same way, with or without as much success. I mean, for instance, they bombed Birmingham the next week after they bombed Coventry. People from Birmingham always complain about how the Coventrians get all the glamour and the myth about them, whereas, you know, almost 500 people were killed in Birmingham just the next week by the Germans, and nobody seems to really care about it except people in Birmingham, at least that's the way people feel there. So they developed a method for that, but then the Germans had a different air war going on for them. Their air war was so much tied in with the ground war, particularly once they invaded the Soviet Union in uh, in June 41, that whereas bomber command by and large concentrated on bombing German cities, of course they bombed marshalling yards and troop concentrations and so on after D-Day and things like that, but basically that was what they concentrated on, whereas the German, the German, the German bomber, which in any case was a a real hybrid that had been designed to be uh, useful in uh, ground combat as well as in as a bomber. Their bombers were not really designed for a big bomb lift and long trips, and so it was different for them anyway. But they did learn lessons about bombing medium-sized cities that had they chosen to carry on with that kind of war or been allowed to carry on with that kind of war. And once you're stuck in the endless spaces of the Soviet Union, it's a different kind of war altogether. They would have uh, probably carried on being extremely successful, although they didn't really have the big heavy bombers like the Halifaxes and the Lancasters and so on that the, the, the British developed and developed you know, obviously because they had to cover long distances from bases in Britain into Germany. And so they were designed accordingly with a big capacity for carrying bombs. Did the Germans invent the Pathfinder concept that the RAF would then later harness and, you know, to such devastating effect in the Third Reich? They seem to have pioneered it, yes. I mean, they had Pathfinder squadrons in this case you know based in you know kg 100 and 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 units like that that were developed precisely to do uh what they did and uh, the british learned from that i mean it's pretty easy in a sense fairly obvious that that's what you've got to have if you're going to have large concentrations of bombers going to cities and causing maximum damage you need somebody to get them there and identify the target, and so you equip them accordingly. In, in the case of the German effort in the autumn of 1940, they had to have these uh, pathfinders because, whereas the early version of the excavate, the beam guidance systems, had been quite primitive, and you'd been able to have it on all the aircraft, the ones that they developed to avoid British jamming efforts were then expensive to produce and hard to produce enough of them and so they were actually concentrated on these pathfinder aircraft uh, and that gave an extra sort of impulse towards creating these elite pathfinder groups that the british copied them i mean it was, it's pretty obvious that that that, that 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 was what you had to do and so once the british got into retaliating against uh, Germany in the autumn and winter of 1940, they started uh, uh, doing a very similar thing. I mean, there was the, the, the Mannheim raid, for instance, was quite definitely patterned on, on, on the way the Germans had approached the attack on Coventry. 
In the aftermath of the raid on Coventry, did Churchill or King George ever visit the city to inspect the damage? King George did. King George showed up uh, less than two days later. He came up by car because the, the railway line had been so badly damaged and arrived in the city, surprising uh, a lot of people, including the Lord Mayor, and wandered around, well, wandered around. He, he uh, surrounded by his entourage, he uh, toured the city, um, the cathedral around through the, the damaged heart of the city and so on. They had a, you know, a lunch in, 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 in the council house, you know, the town hall. In, in Coventry, and and he showed his face to the people. It was it was it was a it was a real moment actually for both George the uh, Sixth, who who was not notoriously a sociable or, or kind of kind of man who 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 could impress an audience, but he 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 marched around the city with his entourage in his field marshal's uniform, and 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 there's a wonderful photograph actually of 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 him. Uh, going through the, through a park, and there's a bunch of very ordinary and slightly astonished-looking Coventrians, uh, particularly a woman with a sort of shopping bag, and she's looking at him, and and she's obviously thinking, "Who is that? It's not, is it?" And you know, and 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 the and and they're all coming in a bit too close, and you can see a very large man just to the left of the king, who's obviously his personal bodyguard who is obviously moving into place just to keep people just a bit away um, from his majesty you know it, it, no it was it was a brilliant propaganda move and, and a genuinely brave and decent thing to do uh, and I think even 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 people who would normally not be great supporters of the monarchy and of the ruling class in general uh, of which there were plenty in Coventry because it was a strong labor town were impressed with it Churchill I don't think came at that point I, he said there are pictures of him in the in in the, in the grounds of the cathedral which a lot of people i know think was at the time after it was bombed but actually it's quite some time later so he didn't but i think the, the king being there was a masterstroke it really was uh which really did help hold morale together at a, at a very tricky time how had events unfolded for those working at coventry and warwick hospital i'm guessing the sheer scale of the chaos going on must have been very overwhelming. Yes, people did what they could. There wasn't actually, you could, it was hard to operate or anything. Of course, the Coventry and Warwick Hospital was actually largely destroyed uh, in the April raids, April 41, I mean, which were almost as, as, as bad as the, as the November raid, actually. They often called the Forgotten Raids. There were two on successive days in April which killed about 450 people as opposed to 568 back in November. Uh, so that was that was much worse from that point of view. But yeah, I mean, there was a real limit about what you, what you could do, but people could basically do first aid and, and, and bind people up. I don't think a lot of operations were done or anything. I, you, you couldn't because all the power was off. And uh, I think there was a lack of generators. I mean, cities were not made to resist bombing in a way that they came to be later on when you know more sophisticated civil defense arrangements came into being I mean, people were shipped over to birmingham i think and people came in from birmingham medical teams and rescue workers and so on uh, to help out so i mean luckily i mean Coventry and birmingham not that far from each other but but it, but it was it was desperate i mean nobody was expecting casualties on 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 that scale i mean the, the casualties were not huge by 
standards from later in the war when bombing became more intense and one might say more efficient. But there was never that shocking the number of badly injured people, not just the dead, of course, for whom little could be done very often. You know, once you get a direct hit on a, a shelter or on a bunker, I'm afraid that's pretty much good night. It's the other people you have to worry about. You mentioned earlier the specialist teams sent in to help deal with the unexploded bombs and unexploded mines. Can you sort of take us through that? How do they manage to do this? Well, they have to go and <laughs> they, they find them, <laughs> they, they get to the detonators and they um, disarm them if they possibly can. I don't think there were any. Actually, I, I think there was one bomb disposal team that did die was not on the night of November the 14th, but a, a raid the month before. There were a couple of quite intense raids, actually, of course, before the main raid on commentary that um, did, you know, kill quite a lot of people, um, not on the scale of the big raid, but nevertheless, who picked up a bomb in the city centre, put it on a truck and drove out to Whitley Common, which is on the outskirts of Coventry, planning to actually explode it there. In other words, carefully unload it and then detonate it away from people and houses and so on. But sadly, uh, they got it all the way out there. And then just as they were about to get it off the truck, the thing went up and exploded and killed the entire crew, the entire you know um, bomb disposal crew. And I think another bomb disposal officer was killed along with a worker who was showing him around the factory after the raid after November the 14th, at the Humber factory, I think that was. But by and large, the, the, yeah, the, the, the bomb disposal crews worked efficiently and safely and, and managed to um, make harmless, you know, the large number of uh, unexploded bombs that were in and around the city centre, particularly the big ones, of which, of course, there were uh, several. Not that many. I mean, the, the really big ones, I think, were, I think, added uh, to the planning of the raid as a kind of slightly terroristic gesture, thoughtfully, by the uh, Luftwaffe High Command. But no, that, 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 that was very successful. It, it's quite sort of interesting to see the, the commander of the naval unit sent in, um, kept a diary, uh, which is available, and he had to fight to get his men given decent overnight accommodation. He, he was going to be put up at some posh person's house, being a kind of, you know, a lieutenant commander or whatever he was. They stuck his, um, his crew, who were all kind of able seamen and petty officers and so on, in the sports stadium, I think, sort of un under the stairs or something. That's where they're supposed to spend the night. And he kicked up a fuss and eventually got them found decent lodgings. So it was interesting to see how even when people were risking their lives in this extraordinary way that bomb disposal crews do, that the British class system was very much alive and indeed kicking, particularly kicking at those who were not at the top of society. So they did a noble and, 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 and brilliant job. Not that there weren't always, there are always unexploded bombs that they don't get to, they don't find, uh, as any uh, British or German city over the next uh, 60 or 70 years would bear witness. I mean, in Germany, particularly, they're still finding unexploded British bombs and having to evacuate large areas of various uh, towns and cities over there. I think it's a while since we had a big unexploded German bomb here, but by golly, uh, they, they obviously built their bombs well on both sides.
rumours and gossip must have been rife after the raid, given the breakdown yes. of communication systems. It's always interesting to see what happens when official communications break down uh, and people are not told what's happening, either because they can't get to a radio, because after all the electricity was off. So people talk and they describe what people have told them and people then end up telling versions of what people told them, which are in turn are versions of what the other person, uh, somebody else told somebody and somebody's brother-in-law met somebody who said something and so on. And, and this is how it happens. It's a kind of a, it's, it's happened throughout history. I mean, the great fear before the French Revolution when peasants were convinced that the British mercenaries that they'd experienced during the Hundred Years' War were on the loose again, massacring uh, innocent uh, French peasants and their families, that sort of thing, when there's no other form of communication uh, spread like wildfire. I mean, there were rumours that, you know, many more people had been killed than the authorities were admitting and that various places whole air raid shelters where hundreds of people had been killed had been sealed off uh, and the government was not going to admit that this had happened because it would the effect on morale it would have. So instead of 560-odd people being killed, there was possibly thousands. The stories of priests being sworn to silence and brought in to bless these sealed bunkers with, with, with the hundreds of dead inside them, that sort of thing. Uh, was quite common. And of course, also the fear that the Germans would come back uh, the following night. And uh, a lot of people were convinced they would and and, and, and had evidence that they must do and, 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 and so on. This is, this is the kind of panic and rumour that is common in any time of crisis, particularly in wartime. Uh, and, and Coventry was no different, if you will. There's a brilliant example of a couple actually getting married in Coventry just a day or two after this devastating raid. Yes, um, yes. How did people actually manage to return to their daily routines and how quickly did normal life resume? How quickly people got to normality depended, firstly, what, how enterprising they were, I suppose. There was that wonderful story of the young couple who managed to get to the church um, what is it, on, the, on the Saturday, I think it was, after the raid. Um, and... The church had been largely destroyed, but they had she had her dress on and he had his suit on. And um, they actually then got the minister, showed up, even though he had also been involved, you know, very much in, 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 in ministering to people after the bombing and really didn't have time for this kind of thing. And, and they did it in the sort of half-ruined church and then went back and all had sandwiches. <laughs> they had nothing to cook anything on. And that was their, their wedding breakfast, if you will. Yeah, a lot of people tried to get to work in the morning. I mean, such is the ethic of a working town like Coventry. Children tried to get into school and people walked into work. Uh, in one case, there was a woman describes walking into work through this, you know, this devastation and so on. And she would normally, you know, pass go past the shop windows on the way to her place of work. And it was a printing works in the centre of Coventry. And, uh, and realising that there was nothing there, all the windows were shattered and the buildings were half ruined and so on. But she kept going. There was something that kept her going. And she was not alone. I mean, she says other people were doing the same thing, including colleagues from work. And then they got to uh, their place of work uh, and it was destroyed. 
So all they could do was turn around and go home again. But it's surprising how many people did uh, try to keep up their normal routines in as much as was possible. And many others, of course, trekked out of the city, partly because they had nowhere else to go. Their homes had been destroyed or damaged beyond any kind of uh, ability to be habitable. And so they went out and, and sometimes they relied on the kindness of strangers in towns and villages outside Coventry. Sometimes they had relatives and so on and so on. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of people on the move. That was, that was the landscape uh, the day after, uh, after the raid. People adapt and, and people did adapt. Um, even before the raid, of course, hundreds of people, particularly if, if, if they had slightly better paid jobs, had uh, found themselves refuges outside the city where they could go at night, on, usually on the outskirts or in rural areas quite close to the city. You could rent a room or if you had, had the money, you would rent a little cottage or you would, you, would, you would rent a room where you would take yourself and, and your family, if you had them, for the night if you were worried about bombing. And so a lot of that was already going on. But the point was that there was real destruction Houses had been destroyed or, as I say, damaged uh, beyond habitability. The electricity was off and priority was obviously given to starting up the, the electrics in, 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 in the big factories. I mean, they were needed for the war. If the factory could be got back in operation, it had to be got back in operation as quickly as possible. Some, again, uh, factories were beyond use, at least immediate use, but all those things. So people in their own homes, you know, they had shattered windows, they had no electricity, and so on. That went on in some parts of Coventry into the new year. Uh, it was surprising how quickly a lot of the city did get back on the grid, but it was, it was into the new year before it was complete. And so life was pretty tough. I mean, even when they were they did a huge repair job on the city's housing stock. Uh, very quickly, actually, I think about 20,000 uh, homes were pretty much restored by the end of the year. And uh, it was a remarkable achievement, actually. It was quite interesting that the outside help brought in, because obviously the, the actual you know, construction and skilled workforce in the city itself uh, was inadequate to repair all the damage. They actually brought in, you know, repair and reconstruction uh, crews from outside the city. And it's interesting that these these men who had been brought in were very reluctant, apparently, to um, be put in lodgings in the centre of the city. Uh, they demanded that they be put up on the outskirts or, or in the countryside, because, of course, they were terrified of the Germans coming back and bombing the city again. So the, the whole uh, psychology of, 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 of the city, uh, even when it substantially recovered and was functioning again, was still pretty shaky. I mean, these were dangerous times and people knew it. Was the raid a success? By that I mean, it was clearly <laughs> successful in its devastation. But I mean, did it actually bring the British air war production to its knees like I guess it ought to be intended to do? The raid was relatively successful. Uh, the Germans could be technically pleased with its execution and with the very considerable damage that had been done. Nevertheless, it wasn't as much damage as they had hoped. It didn't create the panic or chaos that they had hoped for. 
one of the phrases you find in the in the um, the, the the foreign offices um, air war uh, German foreign offices air war committee minutes is uh, that they aim to not just attack the factories but to attack the kind of doer kind of heart of England and its working class, if you will. Um, they saw the Midlanders as kind of, you know, the kind of the, 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 the hearts of oak in the middle of England. Um, so they had hoped that by hitting at that, they could make some kind of a point. And they did, and they could triumph. They triumphed, they crowed, they brought out you know, the German newspapers were full of this amazing raid and the devastation it caused uh, to the hated English and so on. Great triumphalism. The phrase um, coventrated uh, was developed as a, as, a, as a celebration of it. Although, curiously enough, the actual original poster that was put up, if you look at the small, it's in German, and if you look at the tiny print in the reproduction that I've seen, uh, it actually says coventried. Not, not, not coventrated. Although coventrated did come into use in the following weeks, Lord Hawhaw used it, for instance, as a way of mocking the British. But by and large, I think, although the damage was considerable, and I think the Germans certainly would have rightly felt it was worth doing from their point of view, uh, I think the the backlash that resulted from the attack, its ruthlessness, the damage, the horror, the, the you know the the devastation of the, I mean pictures of the destroyed cathedral just went all over the world, uh, particularly in America, where it caused a considerable rise in anti-isolationist feeling. So Americans started to feel, look, these Germans are barbarians, we have to get involved in this, we have to help the Brits. And they started offering more, um, you know, to build, help, you know, sell more aircraft to the British and help them out in all kinds of ways, in ways that, you know, accelerated the, the existing tendency for America to uh, move towards becoming, you know, the arsenal of democracy, even before they themselves became involved in the war. So that backfired. I mean, I must say, if you look at the New York Times and the other American papers, there's very little. I mean, they acknowledge it's an industrial city, but there's, there's very little about um, about the concretely, about, about the factories and so on and, and, and their importance to the British war effort. And there are very few pictures of it. The pictures are all of the cathedral and so on. So in, in that sense, it, 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 it was a propaganda own goal for the Germans who you know, were sort of gloating in their newspapers about all the devastation that had been wrought on this um, this uh, centre of the, the British arms industries. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, by and large, I think I think I think I think the Coventry raid, although it was rightly a cause for some self congratulation on the part of um, the Luftwaffe and the German regime in general, I don't think they had quite reckoned with the. Uh, appalled reaction that this would uh, cause internationally. So by and large, I think Coventry wasn't actually a particularly good thing from their point of view. In fact, I think it, it actually changed uh, a lot of hearts in America in particular uh, and made them more likely to uh, encountenance uh, helping Britain in very concrete ways that before people have been rather reluctant to do.
We hope you found these last three episodes looking at the Blitz on commentary of interest. Stay tuned as there'll be plenty more coming up here on Wolves Nation very shortly. Also, as a special thank you for all your incredible support this past year, we're doing a Christmas book giveaway. So to discover how you can get your hands on these books, visit the Wolves Nation website as details will be posted in the Wolves Nation newsletter very shortly.